Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the letter of Romans. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9 and extending to verse 18. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, Live peaceably with all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Before we go to the Lord in prayer and consider His words to us, especially from verse 18 this morning, I want to draw your attention back to your confession of sin for just a second. I want you to look back at that section from James chapter 3. I've spent some time in James 3 and James 4 this week, a passage that we'll actually be referencing momentarily in the midst of the message. But I want to simply note that last response, the last pastoral response in the confession, because I believe in many ways, this summarizes my prayer and hope for our time together in the Word this morning. And I prayer can, a pray can be turned into a prayer for yourself and for us as a congregation as we focus on God's Word. Uh, listen to Paul's language. He says, Lord, may a harvest of righteousness come forth as evidence of seeds being sown in peace because you have made me one who makes peace. That's my prayer for us this morning, and I believe it's the Lord's prayer for us as we consider what it means to live peaceably with all people or with everyone, as could be translated, that we would be a people who are marked by the righteousness of God and that the seeds of that righteousness that are found in the gospel would be sown in peace so that we would become a people who are marked as peacemakers. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, Jesus says in Matthew 5, for they will be called the sons of God. So as we approach this text of Scripture together, let those words be upon your heart as we seek God for what only He can do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we take the next few minutes in your word over verse 18 here of Romans 12, we recognize that if we are ever to become peacemakers and be those who are marked as a community that is peaceful, then it is you who's going to have to do the work. 
you sowing within us through the power of your Holy Spirit right now, the seeds that are sown in peace, that we, Father, may indeed make peace. Lord, would you come now in proportion to the needs of us, your people, with varying levels of need right now as we sit in these pews and as we seek to hear from you and attend to this, your word, various levels of disruption and fracture in our lives. We need your help. Would you be attentive to us? Help us to know you, the God of peace. And would you, as you so long ago, Jesus, gave to us the spirit of peace, said to us, your people, my peace I give to you. Come and give that peace afresh, we ask it. In Christ's name, amen. You know, peace... We mentioned at the opening of our service this morning, peace is something that every single one of us wants in this room. We might even summarize the sum total of our heart's passion would be that we would be a people who are at peace. As we come into this room this morning, we acknowledge that there are Various levels of peace and fracture and rupture that are right here among us today. And so our hearts groan to say, Lord, more of the peace that you promise. The peace that you say comes to us through the Holy Spirit as he mediates to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are those, if we are believing in Christ this morning, who are to be marred by peace with God. Paul writes it in that way in Romans chapter 5. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But indeed we are to have peace with the living God. And it's that peace that we long to see flow out of our lives in relationship to one another. That the peace that's been won for us in Christ would begin then to be leveraged in relationship to one another. But that's not often the case, is it? A lot of times that peace seems to stop, to be stymied in some way, stuck or blocked. And we find ourselves not being able to get past the hurdles of tension and conflict that so often mark our lives. When we watch the headlines, as we do week after week, and we see longings expressed with uh, talking heads on the television and, and headlines in the newspapers longing for there to be peace in the world. Uh, we see stars in Hollywood and music artists speak about peace for the world and their new nonprofit or program that's going to help inaugurate that kind of peace. We talk about movements like Greenpeace. We ask questions like, will there ever be peace in the Middle East? And the more in which we see the theater of the world unfolded, we're wondering if that's merely a figment of imagination and a flimsy hope on which to ever to expect. Some of us just want to find a place of peace. We've given up on whether there would be peace in the world. We just want a, a little closet in our home to find a little peace and quiet. We want to escape to a, to a place that we can kind of collect ourselves. We even say, sometimes speaking of our own internal worlds, we would just like to find a little peace of mind. 
All of those come to mind when we begin to think about this word peace and how much our hearts long for it. But when we look at Romans chapter 12, we see there's a specific peace that the Apostle Paul has in mind. He's actually not in view here of a global peace or a peaceful place or even that little peace of mind that you would like to have. He's speaking in the context of Romans 12, 18 as peace in relationships with one another. The focus of this series has been on life in the family of God. This cameo portrait, this snapshot of what the church is really supposed to look like. Last week, even exploring the theme of being in harmony with one another, Paul now is pressing in at a deeper level and he's saying we are to be at peace with one another. We are to be at peace with all men. Now the question that arises, I think, from this text, as an assumption from behind this text, is how is that possible? How could we ever get to a place where we could say, we're at peace with all men? Is that even an achievable aspiration that we should seek after? It seems like pie in the sky, doesn't it? When we read, be at peace with all men, let's run through the list. Your boss, your mother-in-law, your siblings, your spouse. Be at peace with all men? Really? This is an incredible call. That Paul is pressing upon us as the body of Christ to take seriously this morning. What would it mean to be at peace with, with all men? How could we pursue that? Well, I think before we can even begin to answer that question, we've got to answer a prior question. Why is it so hard to live at peace with one another? Why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? In fact, when we look out at the status quo of relationships, maybe even in our own context in life, doesn't it often see that disruption and fracture and division is far more characteristic than peace? Why is it that peace is so hard to come by? Maybe answering that question would get us to being able to answer, how can we really pursue peace with one another and even with the wider world, even the people right now who pop up in your own mind's eye that are the hardest people to get along with? How is it possible that we could ever pursue peace with them? Well, we need to get underneath that. And we need to answer the question, why is it so hard to live at peace with one another? And when we ask that question, we begin to get... Some clarity when we look at the pages of Scripture. Because it's a question that takes us all the way back to the beginning of time. It takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, which is where the very beginning of conflict happened. Believe it or not, long before we knew the world as we know it today, which is rife with conflict... The world was at peace in the way that gravity is present with us this morning. Now, I'm really grateful for gravity. It makes preaching easier. I don't have to try to keep myself stationed in this spot to planet Earth while I'm preaching. In fact, I'm giving no effort to staying put right now on planet Earth. It just, it just happens. It's, it's a law. It's, it's just what is. Peace was like that in the original creation. 
It was a law of the universe. It was the reality. It was the air that Adam and Eve breathed at the beginning of time. Man and woman. Can you imagine? Marriage perfect in union. In, in company with the animal kingdom and the rest of creation. And more importantly with God himself. There was absolute peace. Everything was exactly as it should be. That was the nature of the way things were originally designed and is the reason why your heart longs for it today is that you were designed to experience that kind of peace. And there's an ache that rises up in our hearts when we begin to recognize we're far from the design of which God had made the world and especially our relationships with one another. Because in the moment where Adam and Eve took an aid of the forbidden fruit... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was, it was as if, if we can see it this way, an atomic bomb went off. And the ripple effects ran throughout all of the created order. And the ripple effects were conflict. Sin, as it moved its way forward, the collateral damage, the collisions that would happen over and over, as you see throughout the pages of Scripture and we look throughout human history, is the fact that conflict becomes the new norm. It becomes, as it were, the gravity, the law of the land, rather than the peace that we were originally designed for. It was this relational rupture that we see take place in Galatians chapter 3. In fact, it was conflict that was the most visible and immediate consequence of sin in Genesis chapter 3, wasn't it? Adam and Eve, their eyes are opened and immediately they're full of shame and they're dodging each other's gazes. We see a fracture, a wedge that's put between Adam and Eve. As God walks in the cool of the garden to come and meet with them, what are they doing but hanging out behind trees and dodging and lurking behind bushes because they don't want to be in relationship, exposed before the all-seeing eye of this holy God, knowing that they were naked. Immediately, relational rupture begin to be the immediate consequence of the fall. And what we begin to see happen is the conflict of dynamics, sinful dynamics, are playing out right there in the Garden of Eden. In fact, our psychologists and our therapists are on to something. They talk about there being two leading responses to every conflict that each of us in. And, and you probably situate in one of these, these kind of knee-jerk responses in conflict. One we call the flight response, Right? We stick our heads in the sand, we avoid, we do the cold shoulder, we go in the other room. We want to do anything, but we just want to avoid the conflict. And the other response is the attack response or the fight response. We want to duke it out. We want to win the day. We want to fight until we win. Those popularly known fight and flight responses are right here in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, first of all, flying from each other and from God, trying to hide and avoid. And then when they're brought out in the open and God calls them to question, who is it that told you that you were naked? Adam goes, her. It's all, it's all her fault. He goes on the offense. He goes on the attack. And, and Eve says, no, the serpent, you know, that serpent that you made and came in and he deceived me. It's all so familiar. These external manifestations, these conflicts that escalate 
in our homes, in our workplaces, and even generationally as we look at our family structures and systems, and as we look at society at large. These external manifestations, though, are not the issue. In fact, be real careful. People will like to tell you that those things are matters of personality primarily, or they're matters of just communication styles. Uh, Oh, no. It runs much deeper than that. Now, yes, does your introversion run against their verbal processing? Yes, it does. But the issue is not your personality or your pattern of communication. The issue is the fact that your personality is weighted with sin. There's not anything in the world that has not been tainted and touched with sin. The problem is not so much the verbal processing, but your lack of patience with the person who is verbal processing. And the problem with the verbal processor is that they're not quiet enough to know that they need to slow down and be patient with your shortness of ear with what it is they have to say. In other words, laying aside our own interests to take up the interests of others should sound very familiar. The issue comes down to actually operating in the principle of loving each other well. But that's incredibly challenging when you're, when you're shot through with sin and with issues of, of division. And that's why James tells us that it's not just these external issues of holding your jaw right or learning their type and techniquing your way through it. It's about getting to know the internal operations of your heart. The internal operations of your heart. James puts it this way in James chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what it is you want. So you quarrel and you fight. What a hard word from James. Clear word, just hard word. You mean it's not just that I am made this way and I'm this type of person or I like to do it this way. It's that I'm, I'm sinning? Yes, there's a desire, he says. Sinful desire that's, that's at war within you. The, the results of those fight and flight mechanisms, those conflicts arise out of a battle, a a waging war that's happening within you, desires that are fighting. Now, don't mishear James. James is not saying that desires are evil. Desires are given to us by God. Every, Every one of us in this room right now have desires. We have desires, if I may name a couple, we have desires to be loved. We have desires to be accepted. We we have desires that our life matter and that it count and that we do something meaningful with our time and our energy. We have desires to eat. I I have a big desire to eat. I have to watch that desire to eat. Now, the desire to eat is not a bad desire. It's it's actually woven into us biologically. In fact, our survival is dependent upon this action of eating and this desire of eating. If we quit desiring to eat, we call that a disorder. We call that a problem. We actually put our health in jeopardy. 
Eating is important. It's important that we have a desire for that. But it's never just a desire for food, is it? Usually for us, it's a desire for a certain kind of food. Uh, For me, it's a desire for a certain amount of food. Um, It's a desire for that food to come at a certain time. Like now. Like when I put in my name at the restaurant and they tell me it's a 30-minute wait. And I get really patient with that. No, it's, it's all kinds of things around that desire that begins to expose that this desire is not just pure as the driven snow, but this desire itself, though good in its original creation, is now tainted and burdened with sin. And this desire begins to quickly become a demand by which I leverage my own peace and joy being able to get what it is that I want, and I'm going to be mad if I don't. That's when it begins to shift. When we begin to see what happens when we don't get what we want. What happens when you're desirous of that thing, and you don't get that thing, and you see your attitude change? You see the level of your voice increase. And what happens when it's a person who's actually standing in the way of that desire? Conflict. Conflict. That's what causes quarrels and fights among you. I love the way Ken Sandy puts it. He says, it's when a good desire becomes an ungodly demand. It's in that point where we require from this moment our own personal satisfaction and happiness. We must get what it is that we're after. And if you're in the way, we're in for blows. You know, that's exactly what was going on in Genesis 3. Oh, we looked at the fight and flight responses. We looked at the conflict between Adam and Eve and between God. But, you know, there was something going on in the heart of Eve long before any of that happened. We're told it earlier in the chapter of Genesis chapter 3 that that Eve begins to look at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she says, it's a delight to the eyes. It's good for being able to fill one up for food. And she had a desire for it to make one wise. There 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 were desires in her. There were th- what, what were the desires? Well, let, let's tease those desires out. The temptation that came to her was that Eve, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Uh, another way of placing that is that you'll be in control. You'll have power. You'll have everything at your disposal. You'll be greater You'll gain the acclaim that you should always have claimed. You'll probably gain the satisfaction that your, your heart wants. And all, all of the things that we think that, that we're going to get when we get that new house or we get that new car or we get that new promotion, we get to that new place in life, that these things are going to give to me some sense of, of fulfillment, some great satisfaction. I'm going to have arrived at that particular point. In those moments, the desire for the earthly thing is weighted with a heavenly expectation. We're expecting from an earthly thing a divine satisfaction. Did you catch that? We're looking, let me put it in the 
the stark silliness of what it just simply appears in Genesis chapter 3. I eat fruit and I become like God. I wouldn't think of connecting those two. And that's even the nature of our sinful desires. We think to ourselves, I get the job, all my life will come together. This, I, I achieve this end, everything else will be peaceful. How many times have you said, if we could just get a few more thousand dollars a year, things are going to be so much smoother? Right? Wrong. We tend to think if there's some kind of deprecation of something, if that earthly thing could just be there, then we're going to begin to rise to where it is we are. It's because those who have a lot of money, life is clearly better than those who don't. If you think that, get to know people with money. It's a mess. The, the recognition is we have weighted earthly things with divine expectations and in so doing have caused desires that are at war within us. And when that person stands in the way of what we think we want that will bring us to where it is we think that we will be, a clash happens. So the question becomes, if that's the means by which this conflict ensues is through these desires at war within us. How do our desires move to where it is they need to be? You might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm just going to not desire. Good luck with that. That's not an option. And if you go down that path, you'll just find yourself deceived. The question is not the desires, whether you're going to have them or not, but what it is that you're desiring most. Where it is that your desires are pointed. What it is that your desires are looking to. You see, when you begin to look over the context of, of the conflicts that take place in the Bible, the conflicts that take place in our own lives, we begin to realize that what needs to actually happen is our desires need to be turned and weighted towards the priority of delighting in who God is. In who God is. That we, if we're looking to the world for what only the divine can give, we're going to constantly be disappointed and we'll look to something else in the world to feel what the world never could. But if we begin to turn those desires and affections to where they're actually designed to be satisfied, we begin to see the ordering of our desires take place. If desire is the root of the problem of our conflicts, it stands to reason that desires have to change in order for peace to really take place in relationship to one another. So how can we live at peace with one another? Well, that really is the focus. How can we live at peace with one another? Here's two caveats. Two caveats that the Apostle Paul gives us here in this text, and some of you will be relieved by this. The two caveats piggybacked next to this command. The command, live peaceably with all. Here are the two caveats. If possible. If possible. What that, first of all, situates this whole dialogue in is the fact that peace is not one man's or one woman's event. It takes two. Both are involved. If possible, which means that right now in this room, some of you 
recognize that there is a party out there somewhere in whom you may be in tension with, in conflict with. You have sought, as best you know to do, to bring peace in that relationship, but peace has not come. Because it's not possible at this point. But notice the second caveat. So far as it depends upon you. If there is someone in whom you are in loggerheads with, don't let yourself be the reason for it. Don't let yourself be the reason for it. You must do all that you possibly can to be able to bring about that peace as far as it depends upon you. In other words, in those situations where peace is not possible, just make sure that you're not the cause. Others may not be willing to make that peace and reconcile with you, but we must pursue any and all righteous recourse available to us to establish and maintain peace. So how can we do that? If we are going to get out of the way, which is really the biggest issue when it comes to conflict, if we're going to get our own hearts out of the way, taking as far as it depends upon you, what can you do then? Is we must see our love for God and our love for one another increase. And we must see our love for ourselves decrease. That's what's got to happen. That's the shift. Tony was saying a second ago in Confession of Sin, there's got to be a pivot, right? There's got to be a turning or we're just going to be going in circles. We've got to turn away from ourselves and we've got to turn unto God and we've got to turn unto others. That's the exercise that actually must happen. Now, how does that happen? So go do that, right? Well, that's going to be very difficult to do. How is it that that you're going to actually have that turn happen in your heart. Well, here, here's, the, here's the trick about your desires. Your desires are always going to move towards that which you find to be the most attractive, most beautiful, most beautiful and most satisfying thing. That's where your desires are going to go. So if you desire for your desires to be less about yourself and more about God, God's got to become more beautiful than you and what you want. His glory And his grace and the power of who it is he is in the gospel, how he's displayed his love for you in Christ, has got to increase in your mind's eye with regards to beauty. And your own self has got to decrease with regards to your affections and your attractions. You've got to quit being preoccupied with yourself and you've got to be preoccupied with him. The focus has to be upon him. Your desires only point to those things of which they find most satisfying and most beautiful. And so you see what begins to happen is we have to constantly have before us the very work of God in the gospel. If we're ever going to see ourselves diminish in our mind's eye and God's glory and his love and grace increase in our mind's eye. And this happened very practically yesterday for me. So I'm, I'm working last minute right on this message, tweaking some things and changing some things. There last night, my family's been away. They come, come in and... Walking in, and they, you know, they want to see me, right? They want to talk to me. But I'm in the midst of utter brilliance here. I'm working on a masterpiece for tomorrow's message, and 
And uh, I've got, you know, one-liners and aphorisms and just genius stuff flowing in my own mind and heart. And I've got to get this down on page because, it, you know, it might just go if I'm not careful. It's not lodged away that deeply yet. And so I've got to, got to get it in there. And one by one, children come up and they, they want to have conversations with me. And they want to share stories about what's going on. And the phone is dinging and buzzing and things are going on. And I, I'm just, well, wait just a minute, wait just a minute, you know, got, you know, doing this thing. I begin to realize the Lord in his grace, right? He begins to restore a little bit of sanity to me. And he says, you know, Nate, this for you right now is not a message. This is your moment. This is this moment. Will your children be more important to you than this sermon? that's really right about you right now and not about them? Will that text message that's of an urgent prayer request get the chance to be returned? Or will you simply focus on what it is that's before you? Will this message be this moment? I was able to close the computer for once in my life. And look at my children and turn to the attention to the phone in the way that it needed to. Not with resentment. Not with disinterest or distraction. But with love. Now it was later as I reflected on it. After the moment I thought, you know what's glorious about this? Is that my God, for all of the times that I have failed to do that. And they are Many. They are legion. My God has had undivided love and affection for me. Even when I didn't have the wisdom to call out to him. He was moving to me when I didn't even know I needed to tug on his coattails. And he has forgiven me for every time I failed to love others in the way he's loved me. And when I realized he loved me like that. I thought, I want to love others like that. I want others to experience that love. I want them to know his love, and I want them to experience that love through me. I want to be the portal of that love. And in that moment, I begin to see the glory of the grace of God in the gospel became the means through which I could live peaceably with all. I could live peaceably with all. You see, in those moments, then I can begin to confess. I can be humble. I can be other-centered. I can be God-focused. But friends, let's be honest. I'll need help with this this afternoon. That's why we need life in the family of God. I need you, you need me to remind each other and show each other the beauty of the love of Jesus over and over and over again. It's mesmerizing grace that in all of the ways that we have failed him and have been nothing but disruption and rupture in the life of one another, he's loved us anyway. And he's calling us to be the portals of peace by which the watching world sees a transformation within this community and says there's a love there worth finding out.
You see, when we begin to experience that, we begin to realize that it's only to the degree that the peace that is won in the gospel, when that begins to make us, only then can we make peace. When the peace that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for us begins to make us, only then can we be those who make peace. And not a moment sooner. We have to let the peace of Christ into our hearts and experience his forgiveness and his grace at more deep and profound levels and become for one another reservoirs of that peace rather than triggers of conflict. So that through us, by God's grace, we will be held in perfect peace by those whose mind is stayed upon him. The writer Isaiah tells us. For those whose mind is stayed upon him, that is the one thing necessary. For therein is the peace he's called us to. Father in heaven, we would ask for this peace. Right now, right now in this spot, we would call upon you by the power of your spirit to grant peace into the hearts of us, your people. Forgive us for the ways that we have beget more fracture and rupture than we have peace within our relationships. And have given the world reason to doubt that you have even brought peace into our lives through Christ. Forgive us for all of those ways. In knowing that you do, we long for our lives to be different. We long for the pettiness to be gone. We long for the passive-aggressive behavior to dissipate. We long for the resentments and the bitternesses of people who fail us. Of course they've failed us. They're people. They're like us. We long for us to quit holding things over each other and having to curry or earn favor back. Oh Lord, let us forgive like we've been forgiven. And let us extend peace the way you've extended peace to us. And Father, don't just do it for us. Though we desperately need it, do it for your own witness. That one of the unmistakable evidences that our God is a God of peace would be the lives changed in the church. And the way we live in the world. Father, for your sake and for the glory of your name, Come and grant to us a peace that can only come from you. We ask this in Jesus' name, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.